Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Advent is that time of year before the Christmas season where the church recognizes the arrival of Jesus' birth. And then even in that word, Advent in the Latin actually means arrival or coming. And so what happened in the period of history was it took quite a long time um, from the very beginnings and the whispers of what God was going to do, was going to send a Messiah, going to send Jesus. It took quite a long time in Israel's history um, to wait for that Messiah. And so even for these four weeks before Christmas, we recognizing that God does something in our lives when we wait. And sometimes God does his best preparing and best things when we wait. And so I'm praying that maybe if this is the 112th time you've heard the Christmas story, I'm praying that, that God would meet you in a way that only he can and by his spirit in the only way that he can. And so even in this, embedded in this story is angels and messages and stars and kings and kingdoms and innkeepers. And embedded in this, in this word is peace that that over overtly goes throughout Matthew's account of this. And so the, the word of peace, and I'm praying that the word of peace would come to you today. And so this story is just amazing, and things happen throughout this story. My prayer is that we would read this story. We would remember just how good the birth of Jesus really is, and that the message of this birth would stir very deeply in your heart. And we said this last week, but this season offers us all the chance to offer the one whose amazing life gave birth to this season, both our joys and our sorrows, our happiness and our Heaviness, No doubt many of us walking through happiness and heaviness in this season. And this season allows us to give the one who gave birth to it those kinds of things. And so if you do not have a Bible, um, we would love to give you one if you don't have one. Um, but you can open up your Bible in front of you to page 681 if you would like to follow along in the Bible in front of you. It's going to be on the screen behind me. But we at Washington Union Alliance value the preaching and teaching of the Scriptures and I pray that you'd find a church that does the same, preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully. And so page 681, we're just going to put a placeholder there just for the moment. And we are in a series which is called The Faces of Christmas, looking at various people that make up the account above Jesus' birth. They were real people with real stories and real faces which help shape the birth of Jesus. God does not do accidents when he pieces together his story. And so by looking at the very real people who help shape the story, we can come to know who these people are and kind of even also see our own stories in this. So as we look at this, who make up the Christmas story, I pray that the faces that make up this story might begin to shape you in a very real way, and you might be able to find the Lord in a new and fresh way. So maybe for you, you've been asking or have asked or have subtly asked the why question. Why is that person in that story? Why Why is that person show up in the Christmas story? Why is that person there? And God specializes in those details, and I'm praying that we would, by looking at who who, by looking at the who, we might find our why in the Christmas story. You see, every face has a story, every story has a name. And for those who make up the Christmas story, there's a reason for it. And so we looked at why shepherds last week? 
why put the guys, why put the shepherds in this story? Why put the shepherds in the story of the message of Jesus? And so why do that? You see, even for, for those shepherds, heaven's best choir and the greatest news ever told is first told to shepherds. And first dibs on the announcement of Jesus, the guys on the edges of town work in the night shift. As one author put it, they were the nobodies. God sent Jesus to come blazing to earth, not to the guys staying at the Ritz-Carlton, not to the guys staying at Caesar's Banquet Hall, but the first news came to the guys working the night shift outside of town, the guys who smelled like the animals that they were taking care of. You see, the shepherds, they believe and are in awe. They believe and then they live out with purpose. They believe and are in awe and then they live with purpose purpose and they simply believe the words that the angel told to them and then they go and then the heavenly host they believe in what the angel and the heavenly host tells them and then they go and let's not diminish this moment for them as shepherds I imagine for them an eye of skepticism for them I mean an eye of skepticism and yet they take the word and they go and not the scribes of the day or the royals or the Romans, but humble outsiders who had the simple faith to look up and then put their faith in God. And the question would be, do you and do me? Notice verse 16, they hurried off. And one translation says they made haste. This is in Luke's account. Um, but couldn't help but keep the message. They could not help but keep the message to themselves. They went off. And the first ones to touch the Lamb of God were the very people who smelled like them. <laughs> first ones, the world's first missionaries, the guys who could not, well documented in that day, the guys who couldn't be trusted in a court of law, the guys who had an interesting reputation. It was the shepherds. They saw, they heard, and then they went forth. And the question is, do we? God's good news first comes to shepherds, and you would think if the God of the universe, the King of kings, Lord of lords, one might think that the announcement would come differently than to the group of people called the shepherds. In that day, bad reputation, unglorious, dirty, and hard, they hard, hard work, and no city lights, and lived life in fear. If you were born a shepherd, you died a shepherd. There was no social ladder for shepherds to climb. They were a despised class of people, and the shepherds were keeping watch, and they were living out in their flock. They were living out there, living with their sheep, and they were smelly. <laughs> they were outsiders and outsiders in the culture of the day. And normally, good news would first reach maybe even somebody in a higher social class or the elites or those second in command. And the president, you know, is briefed on some sort of announcement, and the next trusted person comes in command. You know how that goes. And yet, the angel and the glory of the Lord appear to surround unnamed shepherds during a night shift in the middle of a field, and the angels come to announce major change, and there's a major announcement of that day. The world's first missionaries are unnamed shepherds, and that's good news for us because God is building his church, moving through folks whom you'll never hear about, folks without significant Twitter followings, no official titles, and of whom the world is not worthy and folks many of folks just like you and I and so will we join him the world's first missionaries are these shepherds so will we join him in that when we receive the news the shepherds 
go. And today brings us to another face of the Christmas story called the wise men or the kings. Maybe your translation says kings or magi as some translations put it in various ways. Sometimes they're the the forgotten guys in the Christmas story. And so as I've thought about the Christmas story, as I've read through over the years, as I've read through the story of this and of the story of Christmas, I've always asked myself this question as it relates to the Magi, as it relates to the wise men. Would the story, how would the story change if the Magi were not placed here? How would the story change? And then what, how does that inform us about God and about how God writes this story through these people? What would the account look like if they were not there? And I think what we will discover is that they are uniquely woven into this account. God has a purpose for them and the uh, very unique purpose for them. So I just want to read this together. Matthew 2, um, you can go there. and It's in that Bible in front of you or on the screen behind me. Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in where? Bethlehem in Judea, that during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his what? Star when it rose and we have come to what? Worship him. Okay, so just like a little... You could, we could spend minefields of looking through church history and many, many research has done from the East. We're not really too sure what the East is from, but many people think it's maybe part of the Persian Empire or way, way out in Babylon in that particular period of time. It could have been close to like a 900-mile trip, which would have taken several months to get there. Um, but they come from the East. We're not told exactly where, just coming from the East. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. Evidently, they have, they have some understanding of the scriptures because they're asking, the, the question they're asking is, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And so we've, we saw this star and when it rose and we have come to worship him. Their intent is worship. So when Herod, King Herod heard this, he was what? Disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. Notice that it's child. Don't go and search carefully for the child. Not king, but child. He can't come to grips with that, that, that there's this king there. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may, too, I may go and what? Worship him. It's just an interesting kind of little, uh, the whole account is just, is just really interesting. But anyway, verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and what? Worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And I'm, I just find this 
also a little bit tidbit here as a part of this story is the Magi come, the Magi come in and they go to Herod. They, the, the star leads them to Herod and then Herod actually points them in the right direction. Like the guy, like the, the brutal dictator Herod, which we'll talk about here in a minute, it's just an interesting little thought. You know, it's like the, the, he actually pointed them in the right direction. And I just wonder sometimes in our own lives, um, the people that we may least expect uh, to hear God's voice um, might actually be saying that. And so this God in his providence leads them uh, to, to, the, to Bethlehem. And so I just, it's just a little thought I had um, with this account. But anyway, Magi. Matthew gives us a little bit of detail, not a lot of specifics about these guys. We could spend minefields looking through literature, looking through uh, what these guys possibly were um, and why they, why they were and our best thought process as to who they were. But Matthew tells intends to tell us the Bible is uh, sufficient for all that we need for faith. And so the Bible tells us, Matthew tells us that they are from the East and have evidently have knowledge of the Scriptures because they identify Jesus as King of the Jews. And so they're from the East. They follow the star. More than likely, they're pretty highly intelligent in their culture and more than likely studied astrology. In fact, they were evidently aware of the Scriptures concerning the Messiah since they're from a long way away and he's looking for the king. They're looking for the king of the Jews. And so Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's four gospels written in the New Testament, and each author is writing this, and each author is writing this with a unique perspective in mind. And so um, Matthew gives us, Matthew's a, Matthew is giving us a, 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 this detail, and he's writing, primarily writing this gospel to a Jewish audience and has spent the very first chapter tracing the lineage of Jesus to King David and how the Israelites long anticipated their Messiah. And then right in chapter two, we're told that the first people, who are the first people to come and to see baby Jesus? People from a long way away, evidently people who had an interest in worship in the Messiah. And the Old Testament scribes that Herod calls on, they're not there first to worship him. The religious of the religious of the day, they're not recorded to be there. But some folks with an interest from a long way away come and come a long way to see Jesus. And the Magi show us that God can draw people very far from him into worship. In fact, they get from the first kind of scenes as far as first on the scene to see baby Jesus. God includes people far from him to come to him. God draws that. God draws people very far from him to come to them. And you see, when you have Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah and King of the Jews, come and be born in a cave, the, the folks from the east are from a long way away, and they get to see Jesus. Good morning. Good morning. Am I on? No. Um, am I on? Okay, you can hear me. Okay, everybody's awake. Hey, glad you're here this morning. Welcome to Washington Union Alliance Church. I'm glad you're here this morning. Glad that you've chosen to worship with us. And if you have stumbled upon this place, I'm glad you stumbled on us here. And um, great to be with you. Okay, so where were we? Where were we? Jesus. Yes, that's the right answer. Thank you. We were right in this. Jesus. Yeah. Okay, we're right in Jesus. That's great. Um, the first people, like, you got to remember, the first people um, 
are first people to greet him are people far from him. I don't see the Old Testament scribes there. I don't see the religious leaders of the day. There's some guys, shepherds, and there's some wise men, evidently from a very far away, and uh, to view him. They're invited to view him up close and personal. Um, they're, they're the people at the going to the hospital when you have a baby. Like, they're the first people there. So, I mean, they're invited to view him up close and personal, and God is a way of telling us through the story of the Magi, he's including them in the story to show us his amazing love and grace to people who are far from him. And I, Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament. He reminds us that I will show love to those I called not loved and to those I called not my people. I will say, now you are my people, and they will reply, you are our what? God. And the Magi show us that God can include people very far from him to be a part of his sovereign plan and invited into his family. That's good news for you and for me. You see, contrast this. There's a couple of different kind of characters that show up in Matthew 2. Herod. Herod's another one. If you read kind of the, through Matthew's account, Herod was absolutely brutal in his day. Herod himself was appointed by king of the Jews by the Romans, and he himself was not a Jew, but he was in constant fear of his rule being threatened to a point where a lowly baby threatened his power. Yet it was the Romans that allowed for the Jews to practice their religion. They were pretty tolerant of other religions, but where things changed for Herod, did you notice where things changed for Herod, is when the Magi ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And that's where Herod shifts. Herod himself was called king of the Jews, and when it was power, began to feel threatened that he began to do something about it. Fear is a pretty good motivator, and so is power. If we feel as though our power is being threatened, we will try and do something about it. Apparently, had no idea that this baby was born in, in Jerusalem to Bethlehem was a mere six miles away, and yet he gathers the religious entourage, the leading scholars and scribes of the day in verse 4 to verify the accuracy, and the, the scribes who knew the Old Testament inside and out reply with the prophecy from the Old Testament in verse 6 that this would be from Bethlehem. And thus begins Herod's plot. And we know from well-documented history about King Herod that he uh, was very paranoid, was very paranoid about power. And he was so, it was so severe, he was so severe that he had his favorite wife executed and his mother, and her mother as well. And he had his brother-in-law killed and executed three of his sons. So he's just absolutely brutal. And just before he dies, he has many other people sentenced to be executed for his pleasure. And so it's just a brutal dictator, and it's no wonder it was Caesar who said about Herod, better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. On the other hand, there's the Magi in this account. And you see this the Magi, Herod, and Jesus. And the question I have is, what does our fear reveal about us? You see, underneath the surface of of our heart, there are all these things that can lead us astray. Our heart is bent towards sin. Our heart is separation from God. Maybe it's a fear of inadequacy. Maybe it's a sense of illegitimacy in our life. And therefore, at the expense of others' well-being, we selfishly pursue our own habits and desires. And then other people are hurt in the process and broken. Maybe if we lose our job or our identity, We're wrapped up not in Jesus Christ, but our work. We'll find every scratch and itch to not give it up. What about power? What about power? 
We often claw and itch our way to gain power or influence over someone or something, and it still leads us empty. Wondering if we'd ever find significance or meaning or purpose. And maybe it's a concern about legacy or a concern about a pressure or a fear of a temporal identity that will all be taken away. And then when that's taken away, all hope is lost for us. We fear that we'll lose meaning and control and end up hurting other people in the process. You see, pride can also be fed off of our successes. And all of his Herod's great building campaigns and accomplishments, they certainly don't reflect a man who's lived a godly life. And see, it reminds me of this illustration about pride. Pride is a dandelion of the soul. Its roots go deep, only a little bit, only a little left behind the sprouts again. Only, only a little left behind the sprouts again. Its seeds lodge in the tiniest encouraging cracks, and it flourishes in good soil. The danger of pride is that it feeds on goodness. Herod's pride hurt other people. Hating revelation leads to hurting people. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by, by this? What do I mean? The deep-seatedness of sin is that sin, all, we all are born sinful, we all are born separated from God, and we are born separated from him. Um, and if not given a Savior who gives us a new heart, then our hearts will be bent toward sin. You remember the game King of the Hill as a kid? Anyone play that game on recess? King of the Hill. Anyone remember that game? Okay, King of the Hill. Um, there's a certain amount of dirt that happened at recess, certain dirt that all the kids knew that there was this mound of dirt at recess, and you knew what was going to happen. You brought all your kids together, and so there was, all, you jockey with all the other kids, and the one rule that the game offered was fight your way to the top and shove off everyone who threatens to take your spot. Um, and it's not just a kid's game. It's not just a kid's game. It's played in classrooms and boardrooms, dormitories, careers. And since mountaintop estate is limited, people get shoved off. And if you're trying to be king, someone else is going to suffer. The result may not be in a Bethlehem nightmare, but it may be a broken marriage, an estranged friendship, a broken family. Maybe it's not outright hating revelation. What I mean, like hating the revelation from God. Maybe they're not necessarily, but kind of disregarding what God says in his word and what God has revealed us in his word to be true. Maybe it's not outright like hate toward the Bible or toward what God says to the scriptures, but maybe it's like sort of like kind of sweeping under the rug, like the parts of the Bible that we don't really necessarily like. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Maintain unity through the bond of peace. Love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother. Do not envy. Some of those things like we sort of struggle with sometimes. Douglas Hare, he adds this, for us, the contrast can serve to symbolize the internal contrast between the part of our inner self, which willingly and joyfully accepts the lordship of Christ our King, and that darker side of the self, which firmly and persistently rejects his right 
to rule. Scoff not at Herod until you have acknowledged the Herod in yourself. You see, all of us are born with a sinful nature, separated from God, and sometimes we sort of disregard, sometimes I've just noticed we've sort of disregarded that sinful nature, but it separates us from God, and it leads to death. And contrast this to the Magi in this account. Herod cannot accept fully that there's another king whose allegiance requires submission. And notice the Magi. They come from a far away from the east who are Gentiles. They are far, they're outside of the Jewish faith. They come searching for Jesus across a very hard and probably treacherous journey and probably very long journey and even running into Herod and then not going back to tell Herod. We find these people to be of actual grace great faith. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and bowed down and what? Worshipped him. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and bowed down and worshipped him. There was somebody I read this week that said this is the greatest, they thought this, this might be the greatest act of faith in the scriptures. It's remarkable that God would show himself to people who are very far from him. That God uses the guys as astrologers, as a voice for Jesus. It's absolutely incredible. And what shows me is that these are clues on how people respond to Jesus. There are different ways in which people respond. According to this account, rejection, indifference, rejection, indifference. There's one more that I forgot to write down. Rejection, indifference, and yeah, somebody said, I've, rejection, indifference, I can't remember the third one. I think I have it somewhere written down. Rejection, indifference, or worship. That's it. Rejection, indifference, or worship. And Herod outright rejects King Jesus, outright rejects him, and it led toward pride and envy and cruelty and greed, and you name it. You see, and then there's the indifference. The leading religious scholars of the day, they don't go to Bethlehem. They're the so-called folks who knew the scriptures, and yet they don't make the six-mile trip there figured that they'd be the ones grabbing the keys to the car and getting out the door to make that six-mile journey. They don't. And church, there's sometimes a danger in this. There's sometimes a danger. Doug O'Connell reminds us that there's plenty of our friends and those who we know are indifferent, but it's also us in the church that are also the exact same, that are indifferent. You see what Matthew intends to highlight here? is this condition that we all have through these people, rejection, indifference, or worship. How will we respond to Jesus? The Magi, they saw it, they obeyed, they bowed, and they gave. And the question is, do you, do me, do we? Do we? Wise men still seek him. Wise men still seek him today in 2022. Jeremiah 29, 13 tells us, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your what? Heart. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In God's amazing plan of salvation, there is a God who draws people to himself. And the religious scribes of the day, they didn't seek him. They didn't come to the manger. 
Those far from God making long trips and journeys, they're the ones to find him there. The good news, church, is that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is not, it is not a game of chess where we have to kind of kind of position the pieces of the chessboard and sort of try to get to God, but yet God has come to us and strategize our way to try to get to God, or God's trying to play a game on us. But yet what God shows us that God brought himself to us through Jesus, and he's come forever and no more mere human striving. God came down to us as as lowly as a baby and through the face of an infant. You see, what will be our response? Rejection, indifference, or worship? And we see, we sit on this side of the manger and we now see Jesus for who he is and yet oftentimes the response to this is much like the scribes of the day and the teachers of the law They did not come and seek Jesus. Their response was one of indifference, where the king that really didn't mean much other than, oh well, oh well, I won't make that trip down to see him. She had a habit of saying little silent prayers about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, please God, make him think I'm still pretty. What heart-wrenching words. Della's knee-length, cascading, beautiful brown hair was her most prized possession, but she had just cut it off to sell it to a wig maker. And she does it so that she will have money to buy her beloved husband, Jim, a Christmas present. With the money from the sale of her hair, she'll be able to buy a gold watch chain on which Jim can hang his most prized possession, the gold watch that had been his father's and grandfather's. Della and Tim are a newlywed couple who live in near poverty. They have little money for finery in their uh, very shell of an apartment, let alone for extravagant Christmas gifts. Without knowing what she's done, Jim will be coming home on Christmas Eve to find Della shorn of her beautiful hair, to buy all to buy the gold chain for him that he possibly that he cannot possibly afford to buy for himself. Will he still think her to be pretty? We learn that Jim has sold his cherished watch to buy a set of tortoise shell combs with jeweled rims for his beloved young wife's beautiful hair, the very set that she yearned over for long, for so long, but can never buy for herself. Della has now cropped hair, but with the finest gift her young husband could sacrifice to buy. And Jim, who now has no watch, But with the most precious gift his young bride could sacrifice to bring him for Christmas. What is a response to worship? We devote our gifts to the king. And do you, do me, do we. And when people are drawn to and find and they find and they worship God's Christ, they also find themselves wanting to bring him their finest resources. Christmas gift giving has its origin here. The first gift giver is God. Now the first human gift givers are the Magi. And those who are born again respond to Christ by giving him or herself to honor and service to the king. I know this about the Magi, that they had this, they, grabbed, they, they, they went, they worshiped, and they loved Jesus, and they produced sacrificial giving toward King Jesus. What are we bringing to him this year? What kind of gift would we bring to him this year? You see, nobody forced the Magi to give any of this. They willingly gave their best 
to Jesus. And they did it willingly as the Spirit of God loosened their hands from their possessions. You see, so today, this is kind of the big idea today, is when we encounter Jesus, we worship and we go another way home. I love this. I, when I have, as I've read this story, I love the last verse of, of this verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. They don't go the same way that they came home. When we worship, we go another way home. He turns when we meet Jesus, when Jesus comes, when we find Jesus. This is the whole part of the Christmas story. When we meet the Savior, he turns our lives from meaningless to meaning, and we change because of it. We worship, and we go another way home. And when we come to Jesus, he loves us, but he loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. And at the foot of the manger, we find that Jesus welcomes and in fact brings teenage mothers, magi from faraway places, forgotten shepherds. Those are the people that make up the Christmas story, the humans and the faces of Christmas, if you will. Will you join them there? Will you join them at the manger this Christmas? and the thousands of other people who have made that trek to Jesus. And all God's people said together, amen, amen. Worship team, will you come on up? We sing this song together. Um, as we sing this, I'm always challenged and encouraged by the, the account of the wise men. I'm always challenged and encouraged by how these folks come from a faraway place and how they come to meet Jesus. And you know, that can happen in your life if you've never firmly or fully trusted Jesus. That is the, that is the byproduct of seeing Jesus, is that we worship and we're changed and we go another way home. Our heart can be changed. Our lives can be changed because of that, because of what he has done for us. If you'll stand with us, I'm going to pray.